Welcome back, guys. Hey, what's up? What's poppin'? What's poppin'? Brand new podcast just hopped in. What's up? Yeah, these boys on my Suns Like Phoenix. Whoa, okay. I like the transition there, because guess what? We just talked to the director of rehab for the Phoenix Suns. I see what you did there. That was clever. Full circle. Yeah, thank you. I've been thinking of that all week. All week? Yeah, it it was hard, because I, I wanted to tell you earlier, but I'm like, no. Nah, if I wait, it'll be it'll be great. So, mm. all right. Well, I'm I'm glad it was a surprise. It was a pleasant one. So yes, kudos to you, good sir. What did you think of the episode? Oh, it was great. I mean, I had such a great time talking to Adam. I, I learned a lot on, on the medical side. It, it's cool hearing the PT side of um, basketball. Absolutely, and I think one of the most important things that he talked about was the education of both the players on how they can better themselves on and off the court, as well as he wants to kind of shift gears and educate the clinicians as well, which is a very important thing that a lot of people overlook sometimes. Yeah, that is very important. And I, I, I'm with him. I think it needs to be done more. Another cool thing he talked about is he got to go to the bubble. So he provided like he talked about what it was like at summer camp NBA bubble 2020. Yeah. Undefeated in spike ball. That's true. And I don't, in I real don't know ball. if he actually said that. And in, not in basketball, though. Yes. In the bubble. In the bubble. That's right. That's what I undefeated. That's what oh, oh, that's right. Okay, I got you. I got you. Yeah. Anyway, you also had pretty good comments on the um, the concept of prehab and injury prevention. What do you think about that? Yeah, that was cool. Um, It, it, it was a kind of like his soapbox. It, he was very, felt very important about that. And a lot of people have different perspectives on it. They, they lean more towards the prehab. But he is kind of against it in a way, and he provides a very, very interesting perspective that I am very much a fan of now. Yep, definitely a soapbox. Definitely some great ideas behind that, or on top of that soapbox, rather. Um, but you'll have to listen to the episode to hear all of his points. Yeah, everyone's further, got a soapbox, and that was his. That was his. We have, we have mine. You have yours. We have ours. That's it. All three of us. All, all three of us. And without further ado, good sir, would you mind playing that saxophone? Indubitably. Ever heard of a cardboard boxy? It's, it's kind of like an armchair quarterback. It's a word we made up, and we think it fits our views of basketball pretty well. Our made-up phrase means that we think and act like a manager of a team, or even the commissioner some days. But we don't exactly have the bank account to follow up on our team-owning aspirations. We've got ideas and opinions about the league that change when we come up with new ones, and we may have some funny jokes. The important thing is we love basketball, but we also realize there are plenty of important people who make what you see on the court run smoothly. There are a lot of people who work behind the scenes to make the league the best it can be. And we like to showcase them because they don't always get the credit they deserve. If you're looking for great interviews and bad jokes, you've come to the right place. So come watch with us from our cardboard box seats. Alright guys, welcome back to another episode of Cardboard Box Seats. Nick's here. Gabe's here. And today we have a very special guest, Adam Loyakino. Welcome to the podcast, Adam. Thanks so much. No problem, guys. Thanks for having me on. Looking forward to chopping up with y'all. Yeah. So, do you mind telling our listeners a little bit about yourself, like who, a little bit about yourself, like who you are and, and what you do in the NBA world? 
Absolutely. Uh, so my name is Adam Leocano. I'm currently serving as the Director of Rehabilitation for the Phoenix Suns in the NBA. Uh, by formal education, I am a strength and conditioning coach and physical therapy, a DPT program. And prior to coming to Phoenix last year, I was in the Atlanta Hawks in the NBA for two years. And then prior to that, eight years in professional soccer, both MLS and NWSL, more on the performance training side. So before basketball, you were actually kind of involved with soccer as well. Can you tell us a little bit about that as well? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Uh, it was a fun time. I grew up uh, playing soccer with my two brothers. Uh, I ended up playing uh, soccer in college at University of Maine. And then ended up coaching college soccer before I went into the world of performance and sports medicine. And so landed a job with the New England Revolution, working within their youth academy, primarily starting off with some of their just general camps and programs, and then eventually working my way over the course of eight years up into their professional team, serving as their assistant fitness coach, uh, primarily managing some of the sports science and then general strength conditioning programming. So while rehab is kind of similar across all fields, there is a drastic switch between soccer and with basketball. Uh, could you could you tell us what made you decide to switch over uh, from soccer to basketball and how hard or how difficult was that transition? I don't think there was something that made me switch. It was more of an opportunity I had to pursue, pursue uh, a job as a performance therapist in the NBA. You know, I had uh, a friend that had reached out and mentioned he had an open position with the Hawks. And that's kind of how it how it started. There was never an interest to make the switch or was I actively pursuing? I was actually um, at the moment was looking to transition out of sport into general orthopedic because I was uh, getting a bit of tired of sacrificing my personal life that comes with working in um, professional sports. But the opportunity came when I wasn't looking for it. And I was young at the time. So I figured, why not? Why not take the chance and just stay in sports for a little bit longer? And here I am, 11 years all in and still working sports. So growing up, were you more of a basketball fan or more of a soccer fan? Oh, man, I, my jump shot's horrible still to this day. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like me and my like I'm, I'm a middle child. Right. So I had an older brother, had a younger brother. And like we grew up in a great neighborhood. So we'd play. We play basketball, play all sorts of sports, and we, you know, grew up with a basketball hoop in our our driveway. But I mean, it was like one of them old school hoops where you threw it off the backboard as hard as you went, right. as hard as you could, and no matter what, it still went in the basket. So maybe it was really <laughs> good. But you put me on a, you put me on like one of them like uh, the the courts in basketball, and it's like, oh man, you're terrible, dude. Um, so no, basketball never really ran uh, in our family strong. It was mainly soccer and baseball, um, just kind of what we all gravitated towards, and so. Yeah, the interest working in the NBA was something that just came out of an opportunity. Um, we were big college basketball fans growing up. Like both my parents went to PC when the Big East was the Big East. And so we were big PC fans. Went to a lot of Providence College, PC Providence College Friars. Um, went there, plenty of games there. Still kind of support that basketball team from afar. Uh, but that's really kind of the interest of where basketball stemmed from. What kind of led to you jumping over? What kind of led to you jumping over to the NBA then? You said there was a, a good opportunity. What was that? Right. So I was working. So when I, while I was working professional soccer, uh, I was also I also made a decision once I realized I didn't want to be a soccer coach. I want to be more on the performance side, like uh, helping the players, not coaching. I re that's when I decided to go back to PT school. And so while I was working for the soccer team, uh, soccer team is doing a revolution uh, out of MLS. They played out of Foxborough Stadium, same stadium as Pat. And so while I was working there, I decided to go back to PT school. So right when I finished PT school, it's kind of at this crossroads of do I keep pursuing opportunities with the soccer team, even though resources were limited and I was just looking for something different, 
or do I go pursue like a true PT role, which led me to taking an outpatient job all the way over in Seattle. But then through my network and people I knew, an opportunity came up to work as a PT in the MBA. So I thought, well, it's a job to work as a PT. That's what I went to school for. So let me explore that option. And one thing led to another and decided to leave the job in Seattle. Never, never actually knew, didn't move there. Lost a month's rent because I was <laughs> at the place <laughs> out there. But uh, ended up you know, diverting my route to from Seattle to Atlanta. It was funny. Like I had a big going away part with all my people back home in Rhode Island. Like, oh, going to Seattle, going to Seattle. A week later, I tell them, yeah, I'm kind of going to Atlanta. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so it was kind of it was like bittersweet, right? Kept, kept me on the East Coast. That was just I, I, like irony, and it was kind of funny. So you got the job in Atlanta, and were you also the director of rehab there as well, or did you kind of work your way up as like a team PT, or how did that work? No, I served as a team, like a staff staff PT. There was people above me um, serving as director of rehab, serving as medical director. So I was another, just another PT on staff. Um, the staff was made up of two PTs, two ATs, um, two SNCs slash sports science. It's a group of six of us there in Atlanta. Did you by chance know Dr. Ken Mountner or Mountner? Yeah, Dr. Mountner, absolutely. He was yep. our team doc. Awesome. Yeah, we had him on the podcast uh, right when this whole coronavirus thing took over and we was getting his opinion on all that stuff. He had some fun uh, stories. Right yeah, I'm yeah. Sure got some good stories. So then from Atlanta, the door opened to Phoenix, also as a team PT, or did you kind of just hop right into that, re- that director of rehab? Right. So I took, I, I took the job in Phoenix from you know Atlanta being a performance therapist to Phoenix now being the director of rehab. So it was a step up. It was part of a, it's a management role here too. My, part of my role, it's kind of like a twofold uh, role from a, from a bigger picture management role. I'm responsible for coordinating and managing the rehabilitation and return to sport process for uh, our athletes while also being currently now the only PT we have on staff. We did have two, but one of them left for another opportunity. So also being in the trenches, doing the treatment, doing the rehab as well. So it's a dual dual purpose role from a management and also a practitioner level. Okay. Very cool. If you keep that position open, I, I know a PT who graduates in a year and a half. <laughs> I'm just man, saying. The number of times I've heard that over the last time, I'm like, oh man. I got to help my that. guy out. Absolutely. Oh, hey, anytime, anytime we interview someone, it doesn't even matter if they're a sideline reporter. It's like, hey, you need a PT. I know someone who's got to graduate. <laughs> hey, man, Appreciate you, you Nick. You got to put those plugs in, man. There was one time like I was on a podcast and I was in between jobs and I was like, hey, man, I'm a free agent, by the way. So anyone listening and looking for a PT, S&C, like, give me a holler. Like, yes, there man. you go. Got to get it. It's good. There you yeah. go. So what does a day in the life of the director of rehab look like? Let's go pre-COVID because that's probably the most okay. relatable. Yeah. Um, so pre-COVID, like, so things about professional sports is when you're in season, days of the week don't matter. And that couldn't be more true in the NBA because the amount of games we play. Like other, like in comparison to other sports such as soccer or NFL, right? You play one game a week, maybe mm-hmm. two games a week, depending on the schedule. But most of the time, it's one game a week. You kind of know what your Saturday is going to look like, your match day. Then you know, like the day after the game, two days after the game. It's kind of pretty consistent. The problem in basketball is there is no consistent schedule, right? So the best way to describe the lifestyle is it's consistently inconsistent. So what that, what that, what that outlook of knowing that there's really only three types of days. You have a practice day, you have a game day, and then you have what you could kind of blend into two is like a travel day and an off day. So if you were to take a practice day, for example, 
we typically have practice at, let's say, 12 o'clock. So 12 o'clock, which means I'm in the office, I'm in the facility by 9 a.m. and our team was having a stand-up meeting. So a stand-up meeting is just a quick debrief of what needs to get done for the morning, who needs to see who. In particular, for my role, this is from the management side, running through the roster of any players that are dealing with any symptoms or are in a return to play process and then coordinating with those practitioners on staff that may need to take roles and responsibilities for that particular phase of return to play or myself having to take a particular phase of that process. So that quick stand-up meeting, maybe 10 minutes, was to just run through the day. Then once you get out of the meeting, it's kind of grab a quick bite to eat. And then depending on, I guess you could call the severity of symptoms or ailments you may be on, the training room may be really busy or vice versa. If guys are relatively healthy, the weight room might be very busy. So you get kind of the treatment, rehab, therapy, strength and conditioning done prior to the 12 o'clock practice. In the meantime, at the same time, the player development coaches, what they're doing is probably like every 30 minutes, probably starting at 10, just small groups of players are going onto the court to do individual workouts, work on their skill, work on their positional stuff. And then that's followed all the way up to 12 o'clock. 12 o'clock, typically film. And kind of 12 o'clock is where, from my perspective, kind of just hands off and observe. Like we're courtside. Um, the, the culture in basketball is, you know, the medical performance staff, we tend to be glorified uh, floor sweepers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, you'll see all of us with a towel on our shoulder, wiping up sweat off the floor if guys fall down. Um, providing water for guys or just any kind of things that go on during practice that coaches need an extra hand. Like I'm a prolific rebounder. Don't ask me to shoot the ball, but I'll get you a rebound. <laughs> um, so those are kind of the things like the medical performance staff in practice that we're doing, right? We're kind of hands off just helping the coaches or players with anything they need to help with, you know, passing balls, rebounding, grabbing water, wiping sweat Then post-practice. So let's just say it was a two hour practice, two hour practice brings you to two o'clock. You get guys that, Majority of the guys take off at that point. Um, once kind of team practice is done, it's kind of hard to keep guys around. They're ready to get out of there. So that's why we try to get most of our stuff done before. I have a few guys that do some recovery stuff afterwards. But let's just say that takes you to on a long day, 3, 3.30. You finish up some paperwork, do your notes, and maybe you're out of there by 4. Um, other days, you may have nothing after practice, and you're out of there when the players are out of there. Um, it's kind of there's no set time. It's just kind of whenever the job's done, the job's done. So I'd say that's probably the best picture of what a day looks like for like a work side. When it comes to games and travel days, those are kind of all over the place. I mean, games are pretty consistent in the sense of you have your game time and players have their pregame shooting time, which doesn't ever change. It's 60 on the clock, 70 on the clock, whatever it may be. And then just before that, it's usually 15 minutes, 30 minutes, they have their routine prior to going on the court where they might get on the treatment table, get some therapy. They might get in the, strength, uh, get in the weight room and work the strength conditioning coaches. So that's kind of their pregame routine. And then, travel, like I said, travel days are all over the place just because it's, it's travel. Speaking of travel, do you get to travel with the team? Correct. In my role, yes. In my role, I will travel with the team every game unless the one-off cases where – we may have a few guys that need rehab, and it's a, it's only a single game road trip or two game road trip, and then we're and we'll we might make the decision to keep players back because resources on the road aren't as accessible as resources when you're at home. So those are few and far between because really, do you have 
multiple people that aren't able to travel um, due to injury. So I'd say 95% of the time I'm on the road with the team. And then maybe there's a, like I said, one or two offs when I'm not. The next question, someone from work, my, my work, one of the PTs there actually asked this. So like with traveling across like state lines and stuff, how does that vary with different laws that uh, like PT laws, like you might not be able to do certain manipulations in one state or might not be able to dry needle in another state. How does that, how does that work? Yeah. So we abide by whatever state we go into, just play it safe. I know there's a few legislations out there that are in motion to offset that, but based on where we go and what we do, we abide by the state, the state practice laws. Okay. So then you said that one explanation was your day in the life of the rehab director or director of rehab um, before COVID. What is it, what does it look like now? Kind of once, once the league shut down, how do you kind of like, how'd you check in on your players and see if they were doing the exercises they need to be doing or making sure they weren't getting hurt uh, while doing quarantine stuff? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I think, you know, looking back, I think we did a pretty good job. Uh, I think everyone just kind of figured out in the moment. Um, you know, we were fortunate where we didn't have any acute injuries at the time. We had a few guys that were on the tail end of some rehab and return to play. So it really was more just an exercise program. And fortunate enough, the players, you know, had access to what they needed. So that made it easier for us too. a few guys. You know, we had to provide equipment to help get them what they needed to get done. Um, but it was really kind of like the rest of the world. You have video, phone calls, text, pictures. If we need, if there, if there was a difficulty with explanation or understanding the activities, you know, we would, you know, meet up, but keep our distances, you know, social distancing, good six to probably 12 feet at a time, just observing from afar and coaching the movement that we needed to run through. Um, that's kind of how it was during the initial COVID. And then, you know, pre-bubble, you know, we, you know, Phoenix Suns didn't go to the NBA bubble. So pre-bubble, it really was very strict um, procedures provided by the league where, you know, if you were following a lot of the tweets that Lowe was just putting out, you know, he was pretty... <laughs> He was pretty much just putting out every memo we got. So it really was like very, very limited from a medical perspective. It really was just geared around getting the guys on the court and yeah. just getting them moving. So it's really been hands off during the pre-bubble. Again, because we're relatively healthy. No one really needed, needed absolute therapy or manual work. It was more just managing with movement and managing with load. And so then once we got into the bubble, you know, it's kind of just, you know, things were back to kind of a regular road trip. And post-bubble, you know, we don't really know what this looks like right now because we don't have a definitive date of when we're going to to start up again. So right. this is our traditional off-season, as you say, right now, um, which means the way we have a structure with our within our organization is certain days of the week we're on and certain the weeks of the month we're off. And that's kind of how we structure to give the guys some freedom of, you know, some time away and some off-season, but also getting the work in and developing as well. So you did travel with the team to the bubble, correct? Correct. What was that whole experience like? Because we've heard like some crazy stories coming out of there. We we've seen the videos that like obviously House of Highlights and Bleacher Report. I mean the one the first one that comes to my mind is when the Dallas Mavericks got there and they're like having their own DJ set on their own balconies overlooking the lake. And it's like what the heck is going on? Was it was it a party <laughs> off the court? Like what's what's going on? Uh, I, so I can only speak for where. Our team was located. So the way the league has structured it, you know, you rank the teams one to twenty-two, and your right. first eight, your first eight are at one hotel, your second eight are at your next hotel, and the remaining six are at another hotel. 
And that was just how it was structured. So our hotel, so I actually call it a hotel, our resort was at the edge of Epcot, but we were kind of just blocked in, right? So the way the bubble structured, they had a very strict campus, right? You had clearly marked boundaries, but you couldn't cross. If you crossed, you had to quarantine into your room for 10 to 14 days. So relative to our experience inside the bubble, like I had two words that come to my mind, it was an adventure and an experiment at the same time, right? Like the first... <laughs> The, the first seven to ten days, like like the NBA did an incredible job preparing for it, organizing as much as they could. The Disney staff was incredible, as you can imagine. They're experts on hospitality, so they were phenomenal. Um, but with any new thing, there's going to be some road bumps. And so the first seven to ten days, everyone's just trying to figure it out, like fill in the gaps that no one's thought of or just trying to structure based on your team's identity. But once we got in a groove, man, everyone on our on our, I can say on our side, it was nothing but positivity because for the first from the first time players didn't have 101 distractions. There really was only a few things they could do, which really revolved eating in the meal room, hanging out inside the resort, playing video games in their room, and then going to hoop when it was time to hoop. I mean, we had very strict timelines of when we could use facilities. You know, you couldn't be in there early, you couldn't be in there late. So it really just made us very efficient, which we actually enjoyed. And it actually started conversations amongst our group as far as, hey, how do we keep this when we get back to Phoenix? And I've already seen some of that trickle over as far as efficiency. You know, guys just being on time, coming in, getting the work done and getting out, right? Not really huh. lollygagging around. So for us, it was it was great. You know, as you know, Coach would say, and they don't have to focus on anything else but basketball, which is awesome. Um, and then just the camaraderie that came out of it, too. I mean, we're a relatively young team. Uh, with the exception of one or two players, really don't have any superstar names. So the guys could just hang out and be a team. It was really cool to see, be a part of. You know, you see them playing spike ball, hanging out by the pool, uh, just chopping them up over dinner. It was just really cool to be a part of, to see, you know, the team come together, which not saying they weren't together before, but just the environment, what society created around the NBA prior to the bubble, it really was this superstar celebrity status and when you get in the bubble that kind of was removed which is nice to see and be a part of were you watching to make sure they stretched before spike ball <laughs> no i was playing spike ball with them oh nice <laughs> uh, we had a couple our strength our head strength and conditioning coach Corey schlesinger was awesome about trying to just provide activity for the guys to do get them outside the room because there was i mean it did get very monotonous uh, yes you know you kind of wake up go to breakfast Wait for your wait for your practice time. Come back from practice and kind of back to your room. So both Corey and, and our you know senior director Brady did their best they could to organize some events around you know the pool or the the little outdoor area we had to play some games. But you know I, I can't say I don't think anyone on our staff really had anything negative to say about the experience. It was positive. We had fun. We grew as a staff as well. I mean we certainly are much closer now coming out of it. We know who we are. We know what we're good at. We know where we need to improve. Um, and it seems like our the rest of the organization came out positive, too, especially with the results we had. Sometimes when I think of the bubble, I think of it's just kind of like a, a nice summer camp for all the NBA players. <laughs> oh, it's exact, it's exactly what my girlfriend said. She's like, you're at adult summer camp. Like, this is a joke. <laughs> She's like, I mean, because, like, she grew up like, I, I'm, I'm from Rhode Island. So I didn't, like, go. I only went to Disney once as, like, as a kid. But, you know, she's from, she's from Georgia, so she went to Disney all the time. And so she like knew all about Disney. She's like, you're literally doing everything I did when I was a kid. Like this is a joke. Like, like and you're getting, and you're getting paid for. It. Like this is right. and you're getting all your meal, you're getting all your meals provided for. It. Like this is a joke. I'm like, uh, yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah. 
she's like, what'd you do today? And like there are a few days, I'm like, oh man, do I tell her what I did? I'm like, yeah, whatever. Yeah. She knows. <laughs> I'm like, well, I went to, I, like I woke up. I mean, I walked around outside, um, had breakfast with my friend, worked out on the beach, um, went to practice, came back, we played some spike ball. We watched some 80s movies and we went to bed. About to <laughs> <stay in> the <laughs> office. <laughs> so it was, I mean, like I said, it was fun. The, the, the toughest part about it was just being away from your loved ones. That was the hardest part. And it was yeah. it was hard to have boundaries away from away from everybody because like if you think just like imagine like most people that are working from home like your your work and your play and your living space is all one one area now so it's very similar in the bubble like trying to just find time for yourself or just get away when you can't get away like it's like it definitely grew on you like that personal stress of just man like I'm here and I can't go anywhere like. It was tough emotion, like I think the rest of the world trying to deal with this new this new environment we're living with. Um, but all said and done, like aside from that, like I can't really can't say it was a bad experience. I mean, it was it was great. It was fun to be a part of. For sure. Recently, we've seen a lot of players come out about their mental health and, and how they've been struggling with some some mental health issues. How important do you think it is with, with the mental health and, and more players coming out? Do you guys kind of work as a team to promote a safe space for players to, to talk if they need it or, or have someone there? Absolutely. We uh, personally, I believe in it very strongly. I think it's a imperative piece of our medical performance model, but also on a professional level, we certainly provide that resource for our players. We've, you know, we have a sports psychologist on staff that is available for the players when, when needed. Um, part of my initial injury checklist, you know, when we have an injury, part of that is a referral out to sports psychologist if the players choose or not choose to use that resource it's always available for them because i do believe it's an imperative part of their health not only just their performance as an athlete but as a human um and the league has done a phenomenal job supporting players and providing resources and providing clinicians all over the country to help them enter that space because prior to maybe decade you know a decade ago where mental health and therapy and psychologists had a misnomer so to speak or a certain stigma there there you go that's the right word a certain stigma and so i think the more people talk about the more people expose and the more people find the benefits from it the less that stigma is and the more beneficial people will find how it can help them because i mean if you think about it from a physical perspective you know you have 450 athletes in the nba i mean they're all pretty physically talented it's like what separates those from the rest and you got to imagine it's it's got to be the mental health component, the mental performance component, in addition to some other things that probably take care of as well. Absolutely. Uh, if you had to put a rough estimate on how much it costs to run the rehab program with the Suns, uh, I don't know if insurance companies are involved or how that all works, but what, what would be a ballpark number? Oh, I have zero idea that. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, and, 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 I, and I say that because, you know, everything's filed through workers' comp, just the way the league has, you know, organized insurance and that for players. So I really, honestly, oh, I, really, interesting. I don't know what is, how it's the finances are covered on the front of the insurance piece. Like that's definitely above me between the, the league and the players association for sure. So w- kind of leading off that whole workers' comp idea, that only applies to when the players are on the court or basically doing something related to the team, correct? Yes, I, I, yes, yes. Without getting into too much detail, it's right. Their contracts are worded in certain ways where, 
Like they they have to abide by certain rules and regulations, just like any anybody else. When you have a job, you have an agreement of things you have to agree upon, and that's kind of where the, the line is drawn. Yeah, that's not something we we often wondered about. So it's nice to hear that perspective on it, or, or actually hear what's going on. So yeah. So with the Suns having like one of the youngest teams, or if not the youngest team in the league right now, how does that kind of add a new perspective to rehab? Do you, do you do a lot of prehab or is there just a lot of like injury prevention, stuff like that? Or, or what does that look like? The, the, the age doesn't, I think the age doesn't change my philosophy on what we do. I think it just shows you the generational differences of the athlete. Um, you know, your vets, your older players will just, they have the routine of, I guess, in therapy, I go in the weight room, I get on the court. Some of the younger guys, just like anybody, their their body feels great, right? They they don't deal with any symptoms. They're like, I'm just gonna go hoop. And it comes into a bit of educating the young guys, like, hey, like this stuff can help you. Here's here's how it can help you. Right? It all starts with a conversation and education, but you can't make someone do something if they don't believe in it or if they don't see the value in it. Um, so relative to your question around prehab or um, preventative work, those are like a little that those are a little that's like a button for me. Like I don't, I don't believe in that terminology. I don't think, I think we've created that as out of sense of, you know, the idea is right. But at the end of the day, you're, everybody's doing some, some form of training, right? It's some form of exercise based on this graded exposure continuum. And whether it's on the table or in the weight room, if it's not working towards a consistent goal, then I don't know what we're doing. Um, I think it should all be connected. It should, it should be working towards some motor component that is valuable or beneficial to the athlete not the sense of let's do these mini band exercises because it's prehab and it's activation it's going to wake your glutes up it's like I, I i just i just can't get on that side anymore i used to be there i've grown and just seen like hey i think we can be better um, i'd rather see you drag a sled than push you know push your right knee out with a blue mini band around your knee um i'd rather think there's more things we can do that are beneficial from a injury preventative standpoint if we want to go down that rabbit hole like what is injury prevention? Injury prevention is modifying risk factors. Like, how do you modify risk factors? You got to stress the system. Um, right. I'm okay. Like, I think there's a time and place for some of your classic preventative prehab stuff. If that's what just kind of eases into the session, it feels good. Like, I'm all for that. Like, if an athlete says it feels good and it makes them feel happy and he feels better after, okay, like, there's, there's definitely merit in that. But if I'm going to pick and choose an activity based on what I know they have to do on the court, I tend to lean more towards, um, performance training principles because that's also where my background is as well so kind of going branching off that young players perspective uh, i'm sure they're doing everything they can to get an edge up on some of some of these older players or the vets as you describe them um had is there a way that you monitor what they're doing on and off the court to kind of attract their performance there we're limited on that like it's hard to answer that question because of cba right. um there's strict rules and regulation which you can and can't ask and inquire about and also monitor so unfortunately um and the that's kind of where the, the line is drawn just based on the cba restrictions okay gotcha so on the flip side of that in practice are there any kind of sort of biometrics that you're using to kind of make sure the players are as healthy as they can because i know when we talked with uh, bernard condovo the pistons he said they have all sorts of tracking on the players pretty much all the time uh, on the court, at least. Do you, do y'all use any sort of that technology? We use some, yes. We don't use we don't use a lot. We use some. So the prior years that I've been in the league, um, a company called Connexon has been a prominent figure for monitoring athletes uh, that are playing indoors, and it's a 
It's an accelerometer you attach to the hip, um, probably the size of half an index card. And that measures mechanical output based on, I believe it's an accelerometer and gyroscope. Because you're indoors, there's no GPS tracking, so you kind of lose some of that that like you have from outdoor camera basis, outdoor GPS systems. Um, so Kinexon's one that we use. We've also regressed to something even more simple, um, just being time on feet. Um, something, you know, our sports science staff is valued just overall time on feet, including what they do in the weight room and on the court and plus vitamin. Um, that's been a, a useful, simple tool. But again, because of uh, rules and regulations from the league and CBA in, in game and in practice monitoring are limited. That makes sense. We totally get that. So with the, with the world, the medical world kind of constantly evolving, how do you make sure you and your team stay up to date so that the players are getting the best possible care? Man, that is a fantastic question and something that we, we are aware of and struggle with at times, depending on the time of year. But what we do, you know, part of what we believe in and part of what our GM believes in is growing and being better. So we do set aside resources for continuing education courses, for books, for seminars, for whatever it may be based on what the practitioner style is, how they want to learn, what it may be. You know, before COVID hit, we were, we had this lineup of uh, practitioners and lecturers that were going to come in-house and educate us. But unfortunately, we were unable to do that. And we, you know, we're resorted to what the rest of the world did in this online platform. Um, so the way we stay up to date is it kind of, you kind of got to get it in when you can get it in as far as time of year. But I know a lot of us on staff like to read. You can't, you'll see a lot of us with textbooks on, you know, on planes, on buses, educating from that side. But I would say that's probably what, what comes to mind when I think about growing and getting better is trying to bring people to us because that's often the easier thing for us based on our schedule. And then also pursuing any personal endeavors that any of us wish to do because we have the resources set aside to allow for that so we can continue to grow. Gotcha, gotcha. Are there any current research topics that you're involved in? Like actually like research projects or just things I'm, uh, I'm reading around? Uh, we'll go with both. Okay. Uh, currently, no research as of right now that we're doing. Okay. Um, hopeful in the next 12 months. Now we have some technology that's possibly developing in-house that could lead to some interesting stuff down the road. Um, but as far as any specific research projects, no, nothing nothing jumps out and become, uh, comes to mind right now. Um, and then, you know, personal Personal stuff that I'm reading right now, I just started a book called um, The Body Keeps Score. And it's about, you know, it's about it's a book from um, psychology where it's all about trauma and how it affects the body. It's been referred to me by a few people. Um, just understanding how, more or less, how does past trauma and you think about like an injury being trauma affect, affect the human system and how it manifests down the road. Um, so that's kind of where my head's at right now. Nothing too specific that I'm diving deep on. Interesting, interesting. All right, so now it's time for our hot seat questions. Uh, I kind of explained this to you off air, but I'll do it for the listeners. What we'd like you to do is we're going to ask you some rapid-fire questions, and me and Nick are going to alternate back and forth. And what we'd like you to do is to answer the questions as honestly and, quote-unquote, with your gut. So you can say, um, you can say, ah, but we want to hear the answer. All right, so number one, where do you think the Suns will finish up next season? Talking about position. In the playoffs? In the playoffs. How far do you think they're going to go? Second round. Second round. You heard it here first, folks. All right. Favorite moment in your NBA career? Ooh, 
that's a great question. Um, man. Oh, going back to the garden, the CD garden for the first time and being on the floor and not being in the nosebleeds. <laughs> so what's been the favorite moment of your career overall? And basketball or soccer? Your entire career, soccer, basketball, anything. Oh, it's hard to beat the bubble, man. That was a crazy experience. Uh, I just think the uniqueness of the bubble was un- unreal. Um, and also the excitement of getting to the Southwest Cup final. That was, that, was, that was cool to be a part of, too. What has been your favorite city to visit and why? Oh, like in the NBA or are we talking in the world? Let's say NBA. I mean, I love Atlanta. I got some roots in Atlanta. All right, let's go New City that doesn't have family connected to it. Man, I love L.A. I love being by the beach. Where do you see yourself in five to ten years? Oh, man, I hope here in Phoenix. All right. Okay. I like it. What is the worst injury you have seen a player recover from? Oh, recover from? Um, I worked with a guy that had, like, had fractured his tibia and fibula um, straight across. I, was, I caught him at wow. the tail end of it, but seeing him recover and then seeing him playing in the bubble – it was nice to just see him get back from that. If there was one thing that you could implement across the league from a medical perspective, what would you do? I'll educate practitioners on like work coaching. Uh, I think it's I think medical practitioners are exactly that. But when you work in team sports, you got to be able to understand the sport, be able to coach, and put yourself in the coach's shoes. I think that um, time and time again, it's just something I come back to. I think just that is missing in the education system that those that want to work in sports, you know, uh, understand how to be a coach or know what the coach is trying to do. All right. If you could bring an NBA team to any city, where would you put one? Oh, Vancouver, man. Vancouver is one of my favorite places to be. Okay. Bring back the Grizzlies, the OG Grizzlies. <laughs> man, that, like, that or Seattle, like, they're kind of, like, they're kind of the same, you know, Seattle, Vancouver, like, there's talks of Seattle getting another one, but, man, Pacific Northwest is too, too good to pass up. So the Suns were very close to making it into the playoffs, almost by one game, pretty much. Uh, what piece do you think they're missing for a successful playoff run next year? Oh, man, I don't know the answer to that question. Uh, <laughs> Just you're clone asking, Devin Booker three more times, and then we'll be good, the wrong, right? You're asking the wrong guy, man. I, I honestly, that's... That's out of my wheelhouse. I try to stay. You know, it's just one of those things, right, from my perspective. I guess that's kind of what's cool about not really uh, ever being invested in basketball like I was in soccer. Like, it's just hard for me to think about those things. I just don't understand the game or what the team needs or who's really great at what. I mean, like, I can observe like a fan, but I think it's kind of a blessing and a curse because I don't get caught up in those conversations. I don't get caught up in those thoughts. My job is to be like, how do I get to perform better physically and how can I help you? Just, just be better. Um, whereas, you know, when I was talking, I was like, oh, let's talk about tactics. Talk about this. And I'm like, no, nah, I don't waste my energy on that. Ambassador. <laughs> That's fair. It makes sense. All right, Adam, it's been a blast having you. We definitely learned a lot. Thank you so much for taking the time to hop on our podcast. Absolutely, guys. This was fun. Y'all are, y'all are two cool kids to be around for sure. <laughs> oh, we appreciate it. All right, guys, thanks for listening. <laughs>